you have to be comfortable with failure. I think this is something nobody ever talks about. I think failure is the most important part of life. I failed so many times. We could be here all day talking about it. And when you fail, you have to learn to pick yourself up and move forward. I always say, focus on the solution. Don't obsess about the problem. Oftentimes, what gets people stuck is you're so obsessed about the problem. Why did it happen? Why did I do that? No, focus on what are you going to do? And so leaning in to me is really being comfortable because I think failure teaches you much more than success ever will. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Thanks for tuning in to the SIDCast. I'm Sid Finkelstein, and my guest in this episode is Sarah Matthew, the third of four very successful women leaders who I wanted to bring to the podcast to start 2021. Sarah Matthew is the CEO and chairperson of Dun & Bradstreet, actually retired now, but Dun & Bradstreet, as you may know, is a major company, a Fortune 500 company. Previously, she was at Procter & Gamble, one of the all-time great companies of talent, with P&G alumni becoming major CEOs and other senior executives in companies around the world. In fact, in 2020, Sarah was the recipient of P&G's John G. Smale Award for Outstanding Alumni. Sarah Matthews is a very active board member. In fact, she is currently the chair of the board of Freddie Mac, which is a gigantic job, as well as a board member on several other firms, both for-profit and not-for-profit. Let me share real quick a few of the accolades that she's received in addition to the Smale Award from P&G that I just mentioned. In 2012, she was named to Financial Times 50 Women at the Top. She was honored by Chief Executive Magazine as the top value creator in the S&P 500. That's pretty amazing. In uh, 2015, she was listed by the uh, NACD, that's the National Association of Corporate Directors, in their Directorship 100 list. She also won an award from that group in 2019 for the Director of the Year in the New Jersey uh, chapter. She's been Woman of the Year for the Financial Women's Association. She was the Pan-Asian Director of the Year for Deloitte, and it goes on and on. But, you know, let's go beyond the awards and accolades. Let me give you a, a preview of what you have in store when you tune in, when you're listening to this conversation. Let me read to you a part of a profile Sarah wrote in the first person that appears in leanin.org. And here's what she says. I started my career as a clerk at Procter & Gamble. I had no American university degree or work experience when I moved from India to Cincinnati about 30 years ago. In the early 80s, very little was known about the quality and competitiveness of an Indian education. I was shy, diffident, and rarely spoke up. A lot has changed since then, and I have achieved success far beyond my wildest dreams. Looking back, I realize how much is possible. If you just let go of your inner fears and step out of your comfort zone. As I reflect on my career of 30 years, there were three factors that helped me lean into this discomfort. The first is to focus on the possibilities and move forward with a solution. There is nothing more therapeutic, Sarah Matthews writes, than developing a vision for what must be accomplished and executing a plan to deliver on it. This helps the reward side of your brain in contrast. It's mentally depleting to dwell on a problem, which triggers a threat response. When you make a conscious decision to learn from mistakes, and we talk a lot about this in the podcast, when you make a conscious decision to learn from mistakes and turn your attention to the possibilities ahead, the discomfort of failure can become a great growth experience. Now, this is something that other people have talked about, and I know that it's a hard thing to do, but Sarah has some great tips in our conversation on how you can use failure to your advantage and how to get your head around that. Not easy, but doable, and she did it. The second factor that helped Sarah Matthew lean into her discomfort was, as she writes, to become a learning leader. This was a personal decision I made five years ago, and today I reflect on my behavior every day, particularly in stressful situations. I actively seek feedback from others, and while the input may not be what I want to hear, I force myself to listen and learn. This has helped my self-awareness so I can make the critical behavioral modifications needed at work. 
And yes, we do talk about this in tremendous detail, the power of feedback. It's really kind of interesting how Sarah's experience aligns so well with my own experience in studying these types of things literally for decades. Then finally, her third point is when you want to lean in towards discomfort, her third point is make sure you have trusted partners in your corner. Now, I know this is easier said than done, but very important. And she says, I've had the support of an amazing husband and a long list of mentors who helped me for reasons I still don't fully comprehend. Nurture and invest in the trusted connections and great relationships you have developed. They are a rare and special gift and can be especially useful during the tough times. That's what Sarah Matthew wrote recently in a post in leanin.org about her own career path. And we'll talk about all of these things in our own conversation. So you can see, you know, there's a lot to talk about with Sarah. She has a wealth of knowledge to share and a personal life story that is loaded with insights and lessons. Here she is, Sarah Matthew. Welcome to the SIDcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and it is a pleasure to welcome Sarah Matthews to the broadcast today. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sid. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for making the time. You have quite the schedule, as we were just chatting about, and just a wealth of experience that I know our listeners are going to want to learn from. Where are you now, by the way, as we connect? I'm in paradise, as we call it, in Naples, Florida. So it's a balmy 72 degrees this is how I live out my dream of perpetual summers. Yes, so we spend nice. winters here. Very nice. It is still very snowy up in New Hampshire and very beautiful, but uh, not quite that temperature number. So let's start with when you first became CEO of Dun & Bradstreet, which is 10 years ago in 2010. And you were at the company for year, several years before that. You were the CFO, the CEO. And I like to ask people, you know, when these kind of major milestones in a career or in life happen, how did it actually happen? Can you give us the play-by-play, the extent that you remember a lot of the details about how you were told about this and how it happened, how it came about? Sure. I mean, to be candid, about six to nine months after I joined the company, the then CEO, who was my boss, told me I would be running the company one day. I about fell out of my chair because it was the last thing I had expected. I had just joined as CFO. And he essentially is responsible for putting me on that path About six or nine months after he told me that, he gave me responsibilities for a portion of international, and my son fell really ill. And at that point in time, I remember going to him and saying, look, I have no interest in being CEO. And I was actually thinking about what was the right treatment for my son and therefore where should I live? And he was responsible for saying, look, I will do whatever you want, uh, but don't leave us. You need to work from home for a year. You got it. You want a year off with pay, you got it. And um, what happened is, of course, my son recovered. He's fine now. Thank God for that. So much later, I got right back on that track. I was told probably when I became COO that I was the heir apparent. So it's yours to lose. And of course, then the great crisis hit. But the board decided to move ahead. And so in 2009, so it would have been probably four or five months before I became CEO, I was told, here's the plan. Here's the transition plan. And that's how I found out. But to this day, I call myself the accidental CEO because there are days like today where I still can't believe I ever made CEO because I didn't even know what the term meant when I came to the U.S. in the early 80s. So somebody said better lucky than good. So I think there's a bit of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a lot of luck if that's the case for uh, one accomplishment after another. At some point, the balance of the scales go a little bit differently. But this is very interesting. So did you say it was the CEO that hired you and said one day you're going to be running this company? Yes. So he he was hiring you with a very clear notion that, of course, you can't be sure, but this is someone that he really sees as the type of talent that will be my successor. That That was part of his thought process right from the beginning. I don't think so. He hired me to be the CFO. Six or nine months after I'd been in that CFO job, he said, you're going to be running this company. And then he did this whole pivot, if you fix your leadership. And first, I was shocked that somebody would even consider me for a CEO job. That was not where I saw my career path taking me. I had always thought I would leave D&B after three to five years and become the CFO of a much larger company. What did he mean by fix your leadership? That's a great question. And the way I think of leadership, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. So I could get anything done. In fact, that is what I would say I'm good at. You tell me there's a problem, I will figure out what the problem is, I will understand it, I will find the solution, and then I will make it happen. What was happening is I sometimes left a few bodies in my wake. And that was what he was talking about. 
that the how matters. And I am eternally grateful to him for pointing that out because quite frankly, I got away with it at P&G. P&G is a very results-oriented company. And I was able to get a lot of stuff done and get promoted through the ranks at a very rapid pace. So, you know, I had um, 16 assignments in almost 18 years. So rapidly progressed through that company. So at D&B and Dun & Bradstreet, how specific was he on his fix the leadership advice? Very specific. So did, did it give you specific examples of what you did? or? Oh, yes. The thing is, I knew it. No one had ever called me on it before. That's all. This is the thing that is so interesting. Almost always we know what's wrong or what's different and we choose not to, or maybe in your case, you never felt like you had to. You were never called on it. And so you kept on going. Exactly. What were you doing? Like, could you share a, oh, uh, I'll give you a, good story. a drive-by shooting example or something? Like, I what will you give do? you a good story. So about two or three months after I joined the company, we had a miss in our forecast. And of course, the person who missed the forecast in sales call had called Alan, the CEO, to tell him, here's what happened and here's why we missed the sales forecast and went on to say it's finance's fault. Now, as a new CFO, I had put a team in place to get the accounting right. And, you know, once I talked to the individual, they felt the way I had recognized revenue or my team had recognized revenue, we hadn't recognized it all up front, we had deferred a portion of it, was the reason why they missed the forecast. And so I went, looked into it, it was done correctly. But as she left my office, she said, ERAM, another product, does it this way, how can you get away with it? So I went and pulled the ERAM contracts and realized that the accounting was wrong. So then the question is, how wrong is it? How much more is there like this? And so I had to very quickly do a quick accounting review. And I found many errors, enough to know that we're looking at a possible restatement of our books. So now I have to go tell the CEO that we're going to be restating our books. Now, let me give you the time frame is 2002. So this is right after Enron. So I walk into Alan's office. He's standing up. It's kind of late. He was just getting ready to leave. And I said, Alan, I think you need to sit for this. And he said, no, I need a big man. I'll take it standing. I said, well, I think we might have to restate the books. He looked at me. I still remember the alarm on his face. He said, like the Enron restatement? And I said, like Enron. I don't think there's fraud, but we're going to have to find out. And I never forget this man sat in his desk. He put his head in his hands. He said, what are we going to do? And, mm. you know, in that moment, I had no idea. I'm not even a CPA. I had no clue how to do it. I said, we'll get it done in six weeks before we release earnings. I knew that was the right answer. And this is an example of how I work. I know what the right outcome is. And then I drove to it. Now, I'm not a CPA. I've never done a restatement before. I did get it done in six months. But that's my drive for getting things done. That is who I am. That's actually so innate in my wiring that if I make a commitment, I'm going to make it happen. And got it done. Got it done in six weeks. Six weeks. Yes. The fastest this has ever been done before, which of course I had no idea, is one year because you have to get it through the SEC. We got it through the SEC as well. So as you can imagine, I'm ecstatic. He's ecstatic. The board is ecstatic. We found the perfect CFO. And then my employee survey results come in. My results were close to last place. And now I'm back in his office. And he said, you're not leading well. And I remember saying, what do you want? You want great results or happy people? And he said, Sarah, great leaders do both. It's very simple. It was very simple in terms of his, how he defined leadership. It's not the what, it's the how. And so I said, well, I guess I'm not a great leader. And he says, no, you don't want to be. So this was Alan. You know, we had these painful conversations where he would force me to reflect on myself and my behavior. No one had ever done that before. Right. That's fantastic to have a mentor as well as the uh, as well as a your boss. close friend right until he passed away last year. An amazing man, because I think he did for me what was more needed than anything else. So he called me on my behavior, stopped me in my tracks. And I think the rest is history. So today, if I had to do it in six weeks, I would get it done in six weeks. But my employee scores would be world class. And they were two years later. So the good news is, once he made me focus on it, and he said, this is not about everybody else saying things about Sarah that are not right and unfair. This is about Sarah looking at her own behavior and figuring out what must change. So the first thing I did is I went back to my team. It was humbling and it was actually painful. Sat around in focus groups. I told people I got these results and it's clear that I'm not doing something right. 
And I need your help in terms of what do I need to do better? And one of the things I do is I make people feel small. A couple of people said how hard it is to work for me because I work so hard and I do know some of the answers and they feel they can never measure up. Now, that's not what I ever intended, but that was the impact I was having. So I had to watch my words, change my behavior. So to me today, leadership is about behavior. It's that simple. It is how other people perceive what you do. And of course, it comes from a foundation of values. You need great values. You have to have competencies. Without that, you can't get anything done. That's the easy part. But then there are your attributes, right? How you react. But ultimately, we all do some combination of all the above. But to the observer, all they see are the results you produce. But what they remember is the behaviors you exhibit. In this specific instance you were just sharing, did you give advice to people in your team that, first of all, had, I guess, the courage to speak up and tell you the truth as they saw it? But I could see that being a tough problem because, as you described, you're hard driving, you're results oriented, you get the job done at a very high level. And then there are people that are working for you that they are very talented, almost all of them, if not all of them, but not quite at the same level. And so how did you solve that problem? A couple of things. One, I shifted to questions as opposed to judgments. Mm-hmm. So here's how I did the research, and I'll never forget this. So we had to look at every product around the world and check the accounting. So I divvied up the responsibilities, and every day I had a meeting in my office at 7 p.m., which is terribly late. If you had small children, I mean, I'd never do that today. I could have just as easily done it at 5 p.m. But this was Sarah, right? We're getting it done. So 7 p.m. in my office, you have to physically be there, and I'm going to ask you where you are in terms of your project. So you would tell me, and then I'd ask you a few questions because I'm very good at ferreting out whether you did the work thoroughly or you kind of sort of did sloppy work. A couple of people did sloppy work. I removed them and put somebody else in charge, never once trying to understand why they weren't able to get it done. Maybe there were some other issues. And after that, the rest just kind of takes off, right? People talk. You know, people were afraid of that seven o'clock meeting. And people called it was a dreaded seven o'clock meeting with Sarah. And so that's not what you want. If you make people afraid, you shut down their thinking. And the role of the leader is to extract the best thinking out of people. You cannot allow anyone to shut down. And I had this amazing ability of shutting people down. was not intentional, but I did it. By the way, this instinct is still there. I mean, I can just see it, but now I have enough control to be able not to say anything. Self-awareness, right? Yes. Self-awareness, awareness of others, behavior modification, mine, not yours, because it's a waste of trying, trying to have you change your behavior. Only you can do that. And that's the way you essentially move up that ladder of a becoming a better leader. Self-awareness is at the heart of it, in my opinion. Sydney, what do you think? Well, to me, self-awareness is almost like the secret elixir for great leaders. I see it when I walk into an office CEO or senior executive or any senior person who has a big responsibility. You almost could see it when you start to talk to them and, and interact. Are they referencing other ideas from other people? Are they connecting things that are maybe not obvious that should be connected? Are they acknowledging that they don't have all the answers? Are they even willing to say such a thing? And there are many other little clues, but it's a biggie. Yeah. And how do you become more self-aware is a very interesting question also, right? Because there are some psychologists that will argue that there's no point working on it because in your subconscious and you can't get to it. I never liked that idea because I'm a born teacher. And if you believe that something's beyond your grasp and you can't teach anyone or guide them or coach them, then it's not very exciting for me. So I think you could. I'm not saying you're going to get 100% because, you know, there's reasons why people spend years in therapy or psychoanalysis and other things to discover themselves because they can't otherwise. But I'll ask you that about self-awareness. And I don't know if this is something you could generalize about or just talk about your own experience or maybe your own mentoring and coaching of others. But how can people become more self-aware about you know how they think, how they behave, what they're all about? Sure. I mean, I don't know if I have all the answers, but I think we are incredibly self-aware. So just yesterday, I was doing a couple of CEO interviews and very accomplished CEO of a publicly traded company. And I asked him a simple question. I said, tell me the one thing you're really good at. He gave me three. And I said, what's the one thing you wish you did better? And he said, well, spending more time with my friends. Now, come on. If you ask me, what do I do well? I'll say, I'm great conceptually. What do I do badly? I'm a horrible listener. I'm a talker, Sydney. 
That is my failing. So if you're not comfortable talking about it, declaring it, you'll never ever fix it. And if you talk about something that's a strength or something that's not really that bad and say that's the one thing you're working on. You, you see that, that, right? Yeah. So to me, that's one. But how do you become more self-aware is you have to be comfortable in your skin and you have to want to get better. I do want to get better. I mean, I still feel I'm a work in progress. I feel I've always been a work in progress. And I still believe in my age, there is more I could learn. How do I become an even better board member? How do I continue to grow and learn? The only way is you open yourself up for feedback. And remember, feedback's incredibly consistent and it's a gift and i tell people if you want to know what you have to work on talk to the person you live with they'll tell you talk to my husband <laughs> yes <laughs> we'll bring him on for the second part yeah. <laughs> he'll tell uh, you she never listens well feedback is really a great point you brought up i've always thought that's not just support not just critical but something that anyone can be working on and i'm a believer in more data points because there's yeah. bias in every one of them yeah. so things like you know you're at a meeting and you played a role in the meeting. And that's not about the CEO, but yeah. just anyone. You play a role at the meeting and maybe you presented something and you're walking out back in the old days when we walked out of a meeting and went back to our cubicles, our offices. You're chatting with someone and just ask for some feedback about what. Yes. And don't say, how did I do? Say, what could I have done better? Better. Absolutely. So you've nailed it. And you have to accept what they tell you, even if you don't like it, right? And I think part of the reason why feedback is so hard to absorb is the part of our brain, the amygdala that is out there looking for threats, automatically hijacks your prefrontal cortex and does not allow you to listen. So I tell people, write it down. And there's only one thing you can say when you receive feedback. Thank you. Can I think about this some more and come back tomorrow? I said, if you can't say thank you for the feedback, and not immediately argue that that's not what you did or what you intended to do. It doesn't matter. If you could just be in the moment, that five seconds allows your prefrontal cortex to think. It allows you not to react in this negative fight or flight. I'm going to fight this feedback because it's not who I am. Of course, you don't intend to be that way, but that's the way the other person felt. Right. I like actually what you added, because this notion of just saying thank you, absolutely, I'm a big believer in that. But then you added this other thing, which is it gives your brain time to calm down a little bit. And even in five seconds? Yes, that's all it takes. I all, And my mom would taught me this. Why are you late? Count to five. Because if I didn't count to five, I'd probably lie and say something that wasn't true. I should have mm -hmm. been home by six. Mm -hmm. It's seven. Why am I late? She said, count to five. And so the one, two, three, four, five is what allows your prefrontal cortex, the executive function of your brain to take over. And once you process it, then of course, there are the issues around the ability to process. So I think for some people, it's harder. I mean, when I look at the people I've coached in Sydney, this will surprise you. I had an administrative assistant who was always angry on Monday morning. They were the most talented women. Mash was phenomenal. But Monday morning was always bad and people knew it and they tiptoed around her. So one Monday morning, I cleared my calendar, asked her to come in and I said, I need to ask you something. And I always say, if you're going to provide feedback that's difficult, ask permission. I said, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I'm asking because I care. You automatically disarm the person, the defenses come down. And I said, you seem upset. And then the whole story came tumbling out. She was a woman and she had an older brother. Her parents paid for this brother to go to college. And by the way, he ended up as a fireman, so he didn't need to go to college. She really wanted to go to college, but they said no. And so she went to secretarial school. So I told her, you can go to college now. We pay for it at DNB. It's yours. Go get a degree. I said, no, I can't. Why is she upset on Monday morning? Because they all get together as a family on Sunday. And as she's driving over to her brother's home, where they sometimes get together, mom says, Pick up coffee, pick this up, pick that up, all for the brother's kids, which I think just grates. And I told her, you know, you need to have this conversation with your mom that how much it hurt that you didn't get to college. I said, this is, you have to resolve this. Because I said, otherwise, every time you see your mom and your dad, they have no clue. So I think part of this is really resolving issues. And I feel I was very fortunate with my parents that they didn't leave any of this baggage which is very unusual. And your description of the story with your secretary is opposite to what you described earlier was your problem with your team, where it didn't matter why or who or what, they didn't do it, they were replaced. 
And so you learned that lesson at multiple levels. You mentioned your parents. So uh, you grew up in India and you came to the U.S. How old were you? I would have been 24. Did you come over for a job specifically or school? No, no. Marriage brought me to the U.S. And since I'm from India, marriage was arranged. So Jacob was picked by his parents and my parents. We did get to correspond the old-fashioned way, letters. For about nine months, he came, saw me, we got married. And then I come to Cincinnati. Jacob was a scientist at Procter & Gamble. And so I end up in Cincinnati. No American degree, no work experience, seven bucks in my pocket. Oh, I spent that on chocolates at the Frankfurt airport. So I arrived here with no money. My mom would say, she should give up $5. She can't keep $5 in a pocket. That was true. And that's how I ended up here. So you grew up in a traditional family, if it was an arranged marriage, because I know that's common in India, but not everyone by a long shot today. Not anymore. But my parents were both doctors. I come from a family of doctors, a long line of women who were doctors, including one of the first women doctors who graduated from London. So it's a long line of people in medicine. But that made me decide that I didn't want to be a doctor or marry one. I thought my parents just worked too hard. That's what you saw. Very interesting. So you grew up in a professional family. Yes. And presumably then also well off or reasonably yes, well off. definitely. And so you saw lots and lots of things. And what did you want to do besides getting married, moving to America? <laughs> I did not see America in my future. I think I wanted to be a kept woman. I thought I'd marry somebody rich. That would enable a lifestyle of leisure and my three times a week nanny petties. I was a spoiled brat. I really had no ambition. I uh, had no idea what a CEO was because I came from a predominantly medical family. Now, my father's brother ran Shell in India. I thought his lifestyle was much better than ours because, you know, his chauffeur had a cap and a uniform. Ours didn't. So, you know, I thought, oh, this looks like a better life. But beyond that, I would say I knew nothing about life, about what it is I wanted to do. But my parents had educated me really well. That I had. But all the education was in India. And when you come to the U.S., I will never forget my interview at Proctor. It was like, what do you do in the summer? And I said, well, it's really hot. We would go up to the hills. And I knew that was a bad answer because you could just tell by the expression. And then he said, well, what did you do in the hills? I said, well, I played tennis. I read. And I knew bad answer. Who paid for your education? And I thought, dumb question. My parents, of course. Where would I have any money? And I knew, again, bad answer. And in the end, I got a job as a clerk at Procter & Gamble. So uh, that's where it all started. Where did the ambition to move up and move up fast come from then? You know, I am fiercely competitive. It's not always apparent when you talk to me. I can't help myself. I played a college sport. But of course, the standards for sport in India are much different from the U.S. I learned that I played basketball in school and college. I thought I was a hotshot basketball player until I came to the U.S. And I realized uh, I am so bad. I shouldn't be calling myself a basketball player. At 5'7", I was one of the tallest women on every team. Every rebound was mine. And the standards were much lower. So it's a very humbling lesson about how important it is to know where the bar is so that you can actually clear it. So that was me. So that sport, I believe, since I played a lot of sport, probably contributed to teams and winning. I love to win. When my kids were small, we'd play Monopoly and it was like, I had to win that game. And my little guy would say, but please, the, let the, me get the, out of jail. So <laughs> no. I, could, I, I could see how that kind of was such a driving force once your career got started. But the thing that's puzzling me is why you didn't do that or didn't think that. You said you... You thought you'd be a kept woman. Where does that come from when you have that drive and that competitiveness and you wanted to win? Were you just being facetious or is that something that you thought was going to happen? No, I've always been competitive. So I like winning. It's hard to explain why it's in my DNA. Uh, whatever I do, I want to do exceptionally well. And the bar is me. It's not somebody else. It's usually me. So I was competitive in sports, very mm -hmm. competitive in sports. And in school and college, things have changed a lot now. Back when I was in school and college, 100% of your grade was dependent on your final exam. I thrived on that. So I would literally be skating through school, and then I would ace the finals. I always did really well, but at the very, very end. 
So people sometimes didn't even think of me as competition in school. They thought of me as a sports person. But somehow, out of the end, I would pull it out. So you can ask, why did I do that? Well, I can only say this desire to win is deeply embedded in me. And I come to the U.S., and I realized that if I want the basic comforts of life, like shopping, I need to work. So now I decide I need a job. Of course, getting a job with no American degree is not easy, but I got into a phenomenal company, Procter & Gamble, and it was almost like getting another education all over again. They promote from within, so they develop people. And while I started out as a clerk, two and a half years later, I was probably ahead of everyone who started in management. It's a phenomenal company. It's the ultimate meritocracy. Was perfect for me. So this is, I mean, PNG is legendary for their talent development, right? And many alumni, PNG alumni, have gone on to become CEO yeah. and other big jobs in many, many companies. It used to be called an academy company, almost like a university and a company at the same time. So could you dissect that a little bit? I mean, it's in the DNA, it's in the culture, but what is it? Like, if there's a listener who is running a division of a big company or a smaller has his own or her own company and they want to build that culture, what could they do? Well, first it's promote from within. So all the competition is visible to you. They're not going outside to bring somebody in. So you really can scope out the competition. The next thing is feedback. Feedback is ongoing. It's a gift. You get it not at the end of the year. You get it all through your career, which is phenomenal. The third thing is the force ranking system, which, by the way, I brought over to DNB as well, is your force curve. On a bell curve, one through five, I was one rated my entire career, and it was terrible. I didn't just want to be one rated. I wanted to be on top of the one list. So typically, it's a pool of 50. So you know there are five ones, and I'd have a sense for who they were because I knew my competition. But then I go harass my boss saying, well, was I on top of that list? And he says, we don't do that. I go, yeah, but you do. I mean, who's like on top of that one list? So I think that process, the ongoing feedback, and they give you a lot of responsibility very early on. A typical company doesn't do that. So you're allowed to essentially try new things. You learn that way. And if you perform, you're promoted. So the one-rated people get promoted faster than everyone else. So you constantly get new opportunities. And new opportunities are, again, opportunities to grow and learn. And so as I often say, I kind of skyrocketed up. And then my ambition on what I wanted started to change. So from starting out wanting to be a kept woman, I kind of started to like what I was doing. And I realized, you know what? I want to be a CFO. And I wanted to be a CFO by the time I turned 45. I was 44 years old. I was sitting in front of the CFO said, you know, you're going to get my job. And in that moment, I realized, no, I won't. He's just five years older than me. He'll work till he's 70. I won't make 60. If I want to be a CFO by 45, I'm going to have to leave. And that evening was when I put my resume out to the Spencer Stewart, Corn Ferry, and Heydrich, lined up three opportunities, and then picked DNB. That story is completely consistent with the competitiveness, the drive, right? And even putting a timetable on it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and actually a making month. a tough choice to leave, I think, what you thought of and still is a great company, where there would be lots and lots of opportunities to continue to grow and learn. But CFO would have taken a bit more work because of the demographics. So some of what you describe about P&G and what they've done is actually quite analogous to some of the things we learned from the super bosses uh, research, ah. which I think you're going to find you ah, find yeah. very interesting when you, uh, yeah. when you have a chance to look at it. People that are good get bigger opportunities. And you don't start by putting a limit on what somebody's capability is. You don't pigeonhole them into something where they don't have a chance to grow unless they've proven they're not interested in or they've plateaued somewhere and perfectly happy and doing a completely competent job. And it's also the case when you work for Superboss leaders that it's really only for high, I call it high aspiration. It's like ambition, mm -hmm. but I, I use the word aspirate, high aspiration mm -hmm. people. Yeah. They don't just want to be successful. They want to do it to fulfill themselves. It's not just ambition for financial gain or prestige or rank, all of which are, are good, but it's for your own personal feeling about what you want to accomplish, what you want to fulfill in your own life. And it sounds like that's what you lived in. Yeah, kind of. I think so. You have talked about the importance of leaning into areas of discomfort. Could you give us an example of that and what you learned from that process? I think in terms of leaning in, you have to be comfortable with failure. I think this is something nobody ever talks about. I think failure is the most important part of life. 
I failed so many times. We could be here all day talking about it. And when you fail, you have to learn to pick yourself up and move forward. I always say, focus on the solution. Don't obsess about the problem. Oftentimes, what gets people stuck is you're so obsessed about the problem. Why did it happen? Why did I do that? No, focus on what are you going to do? And so leaning in to me is really being comfortable because I think failure teaches you much more than success ever will. When you take risk and the more risk you take, the greater the chance you have of failing. If you want to really succeed and reach for the stars, you're going to have to take risk. You're going to have to be comfortable with risk. And when you take risk, you fail. When I became CEO, one of the first things I did is I announced a huge technology transformation. I'm not a technologist, but I thought this had to be done. I didn't see another path. I looked at four or five options and hired the right people who could help me rebuild the infrastructure. And about 18 months later, I realized it was completely off track. It was failing. I had a huge write-off and I had to deal with the consequences of something like that. This was very public. You're the CEO of a public company. They have a short shelf life. So as you can imagine, stock drops 15% in the news. I stood in front of my team of about 8,000 people and I apologized for letting them down, even as I committed to get things back on track. Because When things go wrong, you have to take accountability. This is not the time to place blame. You want to free the organization for the next hill you're going to have to take. And I often say it was textbook what happened. At this point in time, I should just play this out. Stock drops 15% continues to drop as the week progresses. By the end of the week, every analyst has a hold on the stock. Negative sentiment about DNB starts to build up. And of course, then the shorts start piling in. And I think at the end of 2012, we were one of the top 10 most shorted stocks in the S&P 500. And as if that wasn't enough, I got an activist jumping in with a long list of demands. Top of that list is I'd be stripped of my chairman title so I could focus on running the company as CEO. I had a laundry list. I won't bore you with the gory details. But when I think back of that time, I'm often reminded of the saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So what we did is we as a team put our heads together and decided to make two bets. Data as a service which is to put our data in the cloud so it would not be shackled to the infrastructure that we had. We inked a seven-year deal with Mark Benioff of Salesforce.com to put DNB inside, doubled the data investment for what we would call our banks. They were our largest segment. And then pulled the last available lever. We did a levered share recap of the company. So we bought back one-third of our market cap in the open market in the form of a share repurchase and then waited. And as you can imagine, you know, what happened? Well, we performed. We had a classic short squeeze. The stock popped, put us on top of the value creator list of the S&P 500. So I often say, you know, people ask me, oh, you're a financial expert. You knew. I go, I did not know for sure. I was doing the best I could. I felt this was the best thing for the company. I had a great team around me and a great set of advisors. But you never know, right? This could have gone horribly wrong. If it had, I'd have been fired and uh, we would not have ended up on top of that list. So I always tell people, look, in that moment, when you're in that pit, and this is why I say you have to lean in even harder. It's at that time when you don't want to jump that I go, you have to jump. Sometimes that's what you have to do. You have to have the courage to do it, even though you don't know exactly what the outcome will be. But I think if you've got a group of people around you and you're not trying to do this entirely on your own, If there's something off, somebody's going to tell you. So when I think of this example, it wouldn't have happened without my amazing team. And I think it's that process of recovery, failure and recovery, that essentially makes you more comfortable. So today, I don't think of it as failure. I think of life as ups and downs. And when you hit bottom, that's about the time you're going to kind of go back up again. That's just the way ups and downs work. And it's not a setback. It's an opportunity to learn. And I know it's those times when I've been hit the hardest that I have learned the most. So that's what I mean by leaning in. Right. You're making me think about, you know, when you hit bottom and you know, I mean, it's not always true. You can hit bottom and keep going bottom and you're out of business. So that, of course, is possible. But there is a way. There is somebody who will take that back with you. The thing is, you have to provide a compelling enough value proposition for them. In my case, I will to this day say what got me through it was my team. That apology to my team resulted in taking the email system down. I got thousands of pledges of personal support, all in the form of emails, saying, Sarah, we're with you. You have no idea how much 
that helps. You could say it's only an email. No, people care because they want to be part of this journey. Nobody wants to come out of failure. We tried something. I tried something. I take complete responsibility for that decision. It just didn't work out the way I had hoped. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of apologizing in front of 8,000 people, the idea of apologizing in front of one person scares a lot of people. I've studied failure in one of my books on that topic, actually during the Enron era, as it turns out, uh -huh. but not just Enron, lots and lots of other companies. And one of the lessons is, you know, if something's going wrong, you just have to acknowledge it and take it on and fix it and not kind of sweep it under the rug. And, you know, I gave a lot of talks and speeches and some workshops. And it's amazing how everyone nods their head with that one. Who's going to say that's a bad idea, but not everybody does that. And you know how I put it, I said, well, what do you think gives you more credibility with your team? If something went wrong, do you think that your team thinks you had nothing to do with it? Like you were just, <laughs> you know, you were doing another project and the higher up you go, the more you have to do with everything. So what gives you more credibility? Pretending it never happened or actually acknowledging it, learning from it, making sure it doesn't happen again and fixing it. Whenever I said it that way, it was like kindergarten talk. It was so obvious, so simple what the better answer is, but yet people get stuck in their ways of thinking about this. Well, it's because I call it habits, right? So again, I take you back to the brain, the basal ganglia, which is essentially autopilot for the brain is how you do things. That wiring continues to build until you're 75. And after that, you can't build new habits. So this is a habit. Learn to apologize. And once I started to do it, because by the way, I can knock people down. I do it a lot. Remember, I told you, I told you where I started out. And I found that going down to somebody's desk and saying, I owe you an apology. I was really hard on you. You know, I'm sorry. That was not how I intended to come across. And over time, I found myself able to provide restraint where I don't come down like a ton of bricks on somebody. When somebody is messed up, they already know. The last thing you need is to have your boss tell you, well, you really screwed up. So I think it's a habit. We have so many opportunities to apologize. We have so many opportunities to say thank you, to simple stuff, to say I'm sorry. It's powerful. Yeah, it's very powerful. And the fact it doesn't happen nearly as much as it might makes it stand out even more. You're on and have been on several boards, including being the chair of Freddie Mac, which is a gigantic job and in the news quite a lot. The first question about your board experience is, how have you found your CEO experience to translate into the boardroom? Because obviously, well, not obviously, if people are not in that world, they would know. When you're on a board, you're not running the company. Even the chair is a non-executive chair position. You're not the CEO of the company. And so, yes, you provide counsel and advice and discipline and all those good things and hiring and firing of the CEO, but you're not running the company. So how does it translate? Because you also describe yourself as someone you just get stuff done. I always say it's oversight, not overreach, exactly what you said. So whenever I want to reach for the wheel, I pause and ask myself, so what is the problem? Do we have the wrong CEO or is Sarah trying to run the company? And sometimes it's the wrong CEO. And that's the problem that should be brought to the attention of the board and addressed. But the worst thing you can do to a CEO as a board is to undermine them. So when I think of my role and why this helps is this board is the boss of the CEO. The job is to get the right person, just as you said, and ensure that you give them the appropriate feedback that you allow them to flourish. You want to help them see around corners. You want to prevent myopia. You want to ensure that they're thinking broadly. And that's a gift. It's actually what I would call a whole nother level of leadership above and beyond where you were as CEO, because this is about influence. A CEO, you were the decision maker. The buck stopped with me. Now it is about influence, which is my job is to make the CEO think and then decide what to do. My job is not to tell the CEO what to do. And so how do you have the conversation with the individual? Now, it's also around relationship skills because you have to get alignment with the board. And by the way, the board has disparate views. And the job as chair is to ensure that the CEO's choices and the board's alignment are congruent. And so for that, I think it, you require great listening skills, great relationship skills, and a willingness to participate outside the boardroom. So I, as chair, talk to all of my directors on some frequency outside the boardroom. The newer ones, I check in to see how are they feeling? And do they feel a sense of belonging? They're getting the information they want. You know, are they feeling that they can actually contribute? I try to draw out the people who are quiet, because in every boardroom, there are the folks who speak and those who tend to be more quiet. 
And more than anything, I feel, I think of myself as least among equals and the chair job is easier because it's not my job to decide. It's my job to do the will of the board. And once I redefine my job as it is to do the will of the board, then it's figuring out what is the will of the board. So then I could say, look, I don't think we have complete consensus. I don't think we have alignment here. And over time, people kind of slowly converge to a common path. That expression, the will of the board, is very smart because I've known many other directors and some chair people. They don't all say that. I can tell you that much. I'm sure you've seen it because you've been one of those directors yourself. Yes, Um, I have. Still are. What it makes me think of, what it reminds me of is one of the toughest jobs anywhere is to run a professional services organization when everyone is really smart. And the toughest may very well be universities because you can't fire your rank and file professors, but lawyers' offices, legal practices Mm -hmm. rather, doctors' practices Mm -hmm. certainly qualify as well where you have really high intellect and people are used to being right. And my experience has been that the way you lead those types of professionals is by almost inverting the power structure where you're working for them. You're making Mm -hmm. it easier for them to fulfill whatever their job happens to be, which takes a certain type of ego to be able to do that. And I think what you just described, I mean, you didn't say quite that far, but it's consistent. You just described as the role of the chair is to try to capture the will of the board. Now you're going to try to move that will in a direction you think is meaningful. Yeah, Uh, I I, I try to essentially get everybody aligned. We don't need consensus, but we need alignment because we don't have alignment. We cannot give the CEO mixed signals. I also manage the CEO's emotions because I often say, you know, the hardest part about the job of being a CEO is it's the loneliest job on the planet and you have nobody to talk to. So I always encourage my CEO to call me. And, and do they? And if he's vent, yes. And sometimes he's just venting. And I go, you still venting or you need, you, you need some help? And he says, no, 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 I'm just venting. And most of the time he doesn't need help. He's somebody to talk to. And what I encourage him to do is don't do this with your team because they cue off your emotion and you got to be very careful. Yeah, you're frustrated. Then if you're not settled, then they're not settled. But you know, Sarah, there are many instances where you don't want to say that to the chair either because of the relationship <laughs> that uh, might exist. I mean, the chair is and the board, they can fire you if they thought that was the right thing to do. So it's like showing weakness to your boss. Right, right. It takes but, a special know, relationship. It, true, I would agree. But I don't think a CEO that gets fired should be in shock. And I know CEOs have been fired and were in complete shock. That's not right. A CEO should have been given fair warning. It gets to the feedback point that you... It gets, yeah, and you have to be direct. So sometimes chairs don't give the CEO direct feedback. They mm-hmm. kind of sort of say, well, you know, you're doing pretty good. I mean, when I look at my case, I had a phenomenal lead director and a great board at D&B. And I got feedback. And I remember when I was doing the levered Sherry purchase. And the board says, Sarah, you don't even like Sherry purchase. And now you want... It feels like you're rolling up your sleeves and swinging for the fences. What if this doesn't work? I said then you'll get another CEO. And I still remember my lead director, Chris, terrific guy saying, yep, that's right. So we're going to back you. But there will be consequences yeah. if this doesn't you're, work. You're betting your job on this is what they do. I was, be- well, I felt this was you knew- the best path. I, mm-hmm. I I felt we should go for it all the way. And I felt if we didn't do that, we wouldn't get the activist out of the stock. And sure enough, he got in at 58. At 70, he left. He had waited nine more months. He'd have got 120. So you know, it was his loss. But that's the point, right? But you have to be accountable. If it had not worked, I don't think you'd be interviewing me, Sid. <laughs> you'd have an interesting continuing career, but who knows what direction it would have been. I don't know. I would have figured something out. I'm pretty sure I would have figured it out. Yeah. It's like, right? Uh, so there are not a lot of women who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. When I looked it up recently, I think the number was 41. Maybe it's changed slightly, but that's not even 10%. And you were, when you were CEO, one of those women. And of course, you're now the chair of Freddie Mac and other boards as well. What's going on? Why does it seem like we're just not pushing those numbers in any direction we should be pushing them at any pace that's reasonable? I don't have any answer for you, Sydney. I wish I did. The numbers speak for themselves. We just need more women at the top. I'm going to probably come at this from my experience, which may not apply broadly to everyone else. But I can think of three things in my case, one, women need to aspire to get to the top and relentlessly focus on getting there. That's what I did. I wanted that job. Not when I started out, but over time. 
The second thing is I think men need to champion the advancement of the most talented women. And I call this transformational relationships. They are beyond normal mentoring relationships. And as part of this, I started writing down all the people who had a profound impact on my life. I talked about Alan, the NBC CEO. I came up with 16 people over wow. my career. 16. 16, all white male. Now, I don't believe everybody gets that kind of luck to have mm-hmm. 16 people kind of take you under their wing. Harvey Golub, chair CEO of American Express, was the chair CEO of Campbell Soup when I joined that board in my 40s. He took me under his wing and I learned so much about what it means to be a director because I was classic management. I should not have been on that board. I often say I cut my teeth on that board and I feel terribly sorry for the people I subject my management style to because I you know, didn't quite know any better. So that would be the second thing is men truly mentoring in a transformational way, the advancement of the most talented women. You can't do it for everybody. And then the third thing I believe is as a woman, the choice of your life partner, I believe has a huge influence. Now, in my case, I told you my marriage was arranged. So I didn't even pick my life partner, but I don't think I'd be where I am if it were not for Jacob. So ours is a true partnership. I think we complement each other tremendously. Without his support, I would have never aspired to or made it to CEO. He pushed me, challenged me, encouraged me, never once making me feel remorse or guilt, which is, I think, what happens to women a lot, especially when we decided to have our boys. And, you know, the parenting was pretty much left to nannies. I don't think women realize how important this decision is, because when you make that decision, you make it with a certain set of criteria, and then you wonder when you're in a critical juncture in your career, are you truly getting the support of your life partner? So when I think of that combination, you need to aspire to, which means you have to be willing to take risks, which means you're going to fail, you're going to fall, you're going to pick yourself up, brush yourself up and move forward, pick the right partner. And then if more men would take women under their wing, like the many people who did for me, we will fix this problem. I wonder whether in your case, you made this list of 16 people, you know, in the research world, you say that's not an independent construct. That didn't just happen. It's because of your behavior and your, they saw something in you that it became in their interest. And I don't mean in any instrumental way, but worthwhile to spend some time with you because they saw something there. And so people have to, this is true for anyone, not just women, but maybe especially for women. And tell me what you think about this, but people really have to not just aspire, but you got to produce, you got to be a performer. Of course, that's table stakes. So, you know, there's lots of people who perform, but still don't get there. And this is where, you know, it's a great conversation, Sydney, because I feel everyone is born and destined for greatness. Some people achieve it, some people don't. And I have pondered about how the heck did I get this far? I was not that exceptional. I'm not saying I'm stupid. I'm not saying I'm not good. I'm not saying I didn't work hard. I know a lot of people who did all of what I did, but didn't get there. I also didn't seek out these relationships. So people are given advice, go out, you know, develop relationships. So I get a request today on LinkedIn saying, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? And I will always try and help if I can. But that's not a transformational relationship. Writing a recommendation for somebody, you know, to become a White House scholar or whatever it is they want is different than what I got. I got people taking me aside and telling me things about how I could be better. Yeah, it was personalized. It was personalized. It came from a place of care and trust. It was somebody telling me, Sarah, you are so amazing at what you do. And I want to tell you this one other thing I want you to do. So when there's trust, feedback is absorbed more easily because you trust the person giving it to you. You don't think they have an ulterior motive. So I just feel, I've talked to women and they've had nobody there are point in their career where they're really frustrated and then you start getting upset, you get angry, you feel this is not fair. And I think this works in your head. I always say it's all up here, right? It's that conversation in your head. And if you don't resolve that conversation, it's really hard to move forward. Then you get angry like my secretary used to be before you realize that it really is up to you. But I do think men could do more. And they're all busy, right? And I had this happen all the way through my board memberships, people. I mean, even now, there are two directors who no longer serve on boards. I just had an email from one of them the other day saying, hey, Sarah, I just wanted to call and chat. How are you doing? You know, I just joined the board of a SPAC and, you know, he wanted to know better, you know, what was that all about? So that's my point. So why did somebody do this for me? 
I don't know, Sydney. That's the one part that I have not figured out. It's happened repeatedly. And my hypothesis is, because you said being a performer is just table stakes, which is right. But seeing that upward trajectory and potential, seeing this extreme potential, I think even then that doesn't guarantee anything, but I think it certainly helps. And so I'm thinking about for, you know, people, say some of my own students that are, you know, 30 years old, give or take, that are just restarting their career, or people further along in their career, what they can do if they want to fulfill those aspirations. And you said a little bit about that. You have to have those aspirations. Yes. The advice of you know, networking and reaching out to people, this is standard advice. People do this all the time. But to break through that level of, I called it personalized when I heard you describe it, personalized mentoring, as opposed to writing a recommendation letter or something that you know, thousands of talented people could do that have a brand name that might impress somebody, but it's not the same. What they could do to get that personalized besides being, yes, a high performer and also have that potential and do the networking. Boy, I'd like to be able to give them more. You know what I mean? I wish I could give you more because I never sought out any of these relationships. And so... One, you know, I think people sometimes when it comes to performance, the question is, where do you set the bar? Remember, I told you I was a phenomenal basketball player. I was in the papers in India all the time in college. They come here and I realize I'm horrible. Well, you have to accept that the bar is here and Sarah is well below the bar. Now, the question is, do I want to make myself as good? That's Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, right? You can be good at anything. You just have to put in the time. I decided no, so I stopped playing basketball. But on something else, I call it that passion for doing something. So you have mm -hmm. to love what you do. So if you don't love what you do, go find something else that you really love what you do. Because if you love what you do, you're really good at it. I think that's when the magic begins. Then other people see that and maybe want to help you just that little bit further. Yeah, pick the game where you can actually be the all-star. Yes. And that's not every game. It does require, you know, some self-awareness, maybe a lot. It does require some adjustments and pivoting and recognizing failure and giving yourself a chance to fail, as you said earlier as well. Yeah. It's okay. So we're just about out of time, Sarah. It's been a great conversation. I have one last question for you. It's my favorite closing question. It's about advice. And of course, you've given a lot of advice along the way. But this is specific advice to yourself. If you could magically go back in time to when you were, say, 21 years old, you see the 21-year-old Sarah, which I guess in this case would be in India playing basketball or something else, and you could lean over to her and say, you know, if there's one thing you want to know, if there's one thing you want to think about, if there's something about life that I've learned now that would have been great if you learned it when you were 21 years old, what would that advice be? What would be the advice to your own 21-year-old self? To be unapologetically, authentically who you really are. So there's never an act because that's when you're actually able to perform at peak capacity. Embrace all of you. You're the good and the bad because that's how we are made. In fact, that's what makes us human. I am a terrible listener. I embrace that. I'm trying to get better. I'm about 50-50 now, as I okay. call it. I would like to be a 70-30 is my goal. But I used to be probably 10-90. I never listened at all. But the reason is sometimes, you know, people often say, focus on what you have to get better at. And that's how you aspire to greatness. I would say, actually, no, it is your strengths that get you to where you are. You try and minimize what you need to work on, but you embrace it. Because if you ever don't embrace all of you, it's really hard, I believe, to move forward. So if you feel bad about yourself, it's, I would say go away, reflect on that, and ask yourself why. We all you know, are not perfect. I have not met a perfect human being. And I'm the farthest thing from being perfect. But if you can be unapologetically who you are, you will find that people respond very well to it because there's no act. You're authentic in every interaction. Yeah. And it's refreshing. And people like to be around people like that because there's so many others that, you know, this the term fake news has become all too popular, but fake personality is even worse in some ways. You got to be who you are. And it makes me think also that if you know that you have certain weaknesses, let's say you talk about listening skills, you could say to someone, you know, I know I'm not as good a listener as I need to be. I recognize that I'm working on it. And you kind of admit this up front. You take away that entire kind of weapon in the, the, in, in yes. the negotiation, <laughs> so to speak. You disarm your opponent with the one thing that they could hold over you because you know it's there and you're working on it and you know you're not perfect. So fine, what else is there to say? So quite a powerful way to deal with it. I hope it is. I hope it is. <laughs>
Sarah Matthews, thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's busy, 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 but it's been great. And um, this is just a great series we've got in January with leaders that happen to be women that are sharing their philosophies and ideas and advice. Thanks for being on the SIDCAST. Well, thank you so much for having me, Sydney. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.